This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We'll begin the show as we did yesterday. Uh, this is my favorite topic of the day, probably of the week, and, and perhaps the year. And revolves around some explosive testimony yesterday at the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, by former FBI Director James Comey. He sat before those senators yesterday in Washington, D.C. He answered questions uh, on his interactions with uh, U.S. President Donald Trump and the ongoing Russian investigation. Uh, it had been the subject of speculation for weeks. What is he going to say? Uh, is he going to uh, outright call Donald Trump a liar? Is he going to uncover some uh, wild secrets that he has found out? The testimony was, uh, well, it was riveting. Um, calling basically Donald Trump a liar three times. Uh, he also leaked some information. He also challenged the president to produce uh, audio tapes that apparently exist that uh, Trump had uh, recorded uh, those conversations. So a lot to talk about. So let's bring in Ryan Hurl, assistant professor, Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto. And he joins us now. Ryan, how are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, there was a lot to take in yesterday from James Comey, a lot of different angles we can take. Maybe overall, uh, give us your reaction to what he had to say yesterday. Uh, it's hard to know where to begin, but I guess just a, a couple take-home points. I'd say what seems to be close to the consensus view is that in terms of the, the claim regarding obstruction of justice by President Trump himself, uh, they're still a little bit short of clear evidence that this occurred. As one senator pointed out, uh, no one's been prosecuted for expressing hope about the outcome of an investigation. So I think on that front, though it's certainly not over, I think uh, it, Comey did not provide sufficient information to think that uh, a violation of law has occurred. And I think what's important here is that if you're thinking about it in terms of impeachment, a Republican Congress is not going to pursue impeachment unless there is really absolutely clear evidence of legal violation. And I think a uh, second major point that was really quite explosive was the information that there was no ongoing criminal investigation of Trump regarding the Russian links and that Comey had provided that information to Trump and that much of the conflict between the two came from the fact that Comey was not willing to go public with this information. So I think that that uh, I think that was one of the more interesting developments, though obviously there was a lot going on. In terms of the obstruction of justice and, you know, Comey not willing to uh, say anything in an open setting, so to speak, w w did he do that by strategy? Uh, I'm not sure what the strategy would be. I mean, you're dealing with a situation where the the explicit words used by Trump did not uh, constitute a directive. And indeed, after their conversation, the, uh, the Flynn investigation continued. Trump didn't raise the matter with Comey again. Uh, and what's most important here, I think, is the fact that Comey did not go to his superiors in the Justice Department to raise the concerns. Or perhaps most importantly of all, Comey did not resign. Um, if given an improper order right, by Trump, that is, I mean, that is the proper response. And Trump would be in a much more difficult position. If after that initial conversation, Comey had said, I'm resigning, I'm going public with information, or even if he had gone to the Justice Department. So I think that uh, if you're thinking in strategic terms, uh, Comey was not very strategic at that stage if he really felt that Trump was obstructing justice through his conversations or putting uh, an amount of pressure that amounted to illegal conduct. So what happens now that James Comey's testimony has, has ended? What, what are the next steps? I think 
there is going to be continuing investigations in the Senate. There is still the investigation by Special Prosecutor uh, Robert Mueller about uh, Russian influence in the election and possible uh, connections between the Trump campaign. I think on that front, however, Comey suggested that uh, that Trump might be that expectations or assumptions about the connections between Trump uh, and the Russian government or the Trump campaign have been have been overstated. So I think on that front, uh, Trump came out very well on in terms of Trump's own personal conduct, in terms of the decisions he's made, uh, in terms of his ability to inspire confidence in people who are working for the executive branch. Uh, not a very good day for Trump. We're speaking with uh, Ryan Hurl, Assistant Professor, Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto here on the Scott Thompson Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick, in for Scott. Uh, I agree with your sentiments in terms of, the uh, you know, a Republican Congress not pursuing impeachment. Mm-hmm. Um, but should he be worried? Should Donald Trump be worried? And do you expect uh, uh, senators to ask Trump to release any tapes that he may have? That's an interesting question. Uh, I'm not exactly certain what Trump would gain, per se, from releasing those tapes. You're simply going to have a situation where it's not going to be about the specific words. It will be about tone. I don't know if that could be cleared up by if there was a video that could somehow uh, clear up what, what happened between them. I, at this point, I don't think there is any real way to, to establish uh, in a really objective way what was going on. Um, it's Trump and Comey will both claim that they had different interpretations of their of their conversation. Uh, so I I think at this point, particularly given the, the simple political fact that you're dealing with the Republican Congress, there they don't see any evidence of illegality at this at this stage, and they don't really have much incentive to push it further. I think what's the only thing that could make this go to a, a much more difficult stage for the president is if the special prosecutor finds uh, damning information regarding uh, the really the underlying problem, which is the p- potential connections between the Trump campaign and the Russians. We heard from uh, Donald Trump's uh, lawyer yesterday, and uh, we hear that Trump's legal team now says it plans to file uh, a complaint early next week uh, that uh, they're going to take issue with Comey's revelation that he asked a friend to pass along notes about his private conversations with Trump to a reporter. Uh, is Comey in some hot water here? Uh, that's a difficult question for me to answer. I mean, I did a little bit of research on this. It's arguable that Comey was violating federal law when releasing uh, when releasing those notes. Again, it would be, a, a, as I said earlier, a different situation if he had immediately resigned and gone and gone public with that information. But to release that information through a friend, to have it leaked to the press, that is not something that even an ordinary FBI agent can do when they're meeting with superiors or having, uh, you know, having discussions with uh, the, uh, members of the De- uh, Department of Justice. So, yes, I think that Comey did not come off very well on that front. In terms of uh, uh, President Trump, he was very quiet throughout the day yesterday, but uh, at daybreak uh, this morning, as I think uh, millions of Americans expected, uh, he did send out a tweet saying, quote, despite so many false statements and lies, total and complete vindication, and wow, Comey is a leaker. <laughs> I guess we shouldn't be surprised that he has he, he has something to say. He's He's not going to learn or adjust his behavior regarding Twitter. It has simply become too addictive to him. And I, I think that his inability to see that is in, in really incredibly troubling. He, he is not helping himself by interjecting into, into the conversation at, at this stage. 
simply standing back would have been the would have been the best situation, given the fact that, in a lot of ways, Comey's testimony was underwhelming. It's almost like he he just uh, you know he can't help himself. He, he's got to have that final shot in there. Yeah, and I, I think I, I should reiterate here that, or at least make it absolutely clear that, despite the fact that what Trump did in relation to Comey did not rise to the level of illegal conduct. Almost every stage of this was very, very inappropriate and exactly the kind of thing that you would expect from a president who does not have prior political experience. He should not have even placed pressure on Comey in this instance, even though there's nothing illegal about a president uh, exerting, trying to exert influence over the executive branch. He should not have fired Comey under those, those particular circumstances, given the ongoing investigation into the uh, Russian connection, even though the president has the power to fire the FBI director for any reason. So you see, and in addition, the something we haven't mentioned, the request for a loyalty oath. Again, this is not exactly illegal, but just deeply inappropriate, considered really inappropriate, particularly under the circumstances. Uh, Russia has come out, uh, well, at least a senior Russian lawmaker, and has dismissed Comey's testimony as uh, insignificant. And, and all the while, Russia has uh, denied any sort of uh, voter registration uh, database uh, elections uh, hacking or, or, or meddling. Uh, what do you make of the ties uh, between the, the U.S. and Russia? Are, are they repairable at this point, or is this uh, way off uh, the deck? It, that's a little bit difficult for me to say. And I think that even if we have more clarity about the relationship between the Trump campaign and Russia after Comey's testimony, though it's certainly not complete, uh, I think that uh, tensions are going to remain high. And people just have to be aware that you exist in a world where uh, foreign governments are trying to influence the United States in any number of ways. And Russia is first and foremost amongst that group. And that's not likely to change. Ryan, appreciate the time today. Enjoy the weekend. No problem. You too. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Legislation proposed to take effect in January would ban all Ontario employers from asking staff for a doctor's note if they take 10 or fewer sick days in a year. Labor Minister Kevin Flynn, who joined CHML's Bill Kelly Show earlier on today, says the law will ensure all workers are entitled to at least 10 personal emergency leave days annually, two of which must be paid. Uh, It's part of the workplace reform law that the uh, Kathleen Wynne government has introduced. Uh, That is also the same law that will boost the province's minimum wage to $14 an hour on January 1st. And as you all know, that minimum wage will go to uh, $15 an hour in uh, 2019. So if you work for a major corporation right now, uh, for example, me here at Chorus Entertainment, you know, major uh, Canadian organization. Right now, we're entitled to I think it's nine or ten days, uh, sick days that we're allowed to take. And uh, after that tenth day or that ninth day, whatever the number is, uh, we have to provide a doctor's note to say, uh, "Hey, boss, uh, you know, I, I was sick. Here is the uh, you know the legitimate reason. Here is the doctor's note proving that I was uh, down for the count." So to speak, a lot of workers now who uh, are, are self-employed, uh, obviously, well, if you're self-employed, I guess you wouldn't need a doctor's note. Hey, I'm, I'm taking the day off. I'm not feeling well. But if you work for a mom and pop shop or, you know, a convenience store or a, really a small business, uh, the, the rules are a little bit different. But, you know, come January, uh, this workplace reform law 
uh, will basically say that uh, you don't need a doctor's note if it's within that 10-day sick day period, if that makes sense. Well, here to uh, shed a little more light on how this is all going to work and, and, more importantly, what the impact is going to be is John Pincus, employment lawyer at Semfiro to Markin. And uh, John joins us now. John, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Not too bad. Uh, well, maybe in, in, in a broader sense, uh, this this uh, legislation, this proposed legislation that's going to take effect in January, uh, that would ban all Ontario employers from asking staff for a doctor's note if they take 10 or less sick days, uh, is, is this a long time coming? Is this what people have been asking for? Well, it's it's not something that employees or employers have really been asking for. Well, certainly not employers, of course, and it's not something I, I think employees have been pushing for. This really comes from the Ontario Medical Association, and the, the reason this push comes from them is, I mean, purely from a, an infection perspective, from wanting to keep sick people in bed when they don't need to be diagnosed, when it's clear they have something, when it's something as obvious as a cold or a flu. There's there's no reason to march them into a doctor's office just to get a no validating uh, what is an what is an obvious um, illness so I, I think that's where this is really coming from uh, for employees it's um, it, it's an inconvenience but um, in terms of the, the lobbying that, that was very clear that it, that it came from the medical community it keeps sick people out of the workplace keeps sick people out of doctor's offices makes their jobs easier um, so that that's where I think this really comes from. From uh, an employee standpoint, right now, if, if as I said, you work for a small business, a mom and pop shop, uh, you know, a corner store, uh, you, you will more often than not have to provide that doctor's note, right? I mean, and any employer right now um, can. Uh, can ask for a doctor's note, uh, big or small, doesn't really make a difference if we're talking about uh, Walmart or, or, or the local uh, convenience store. Um, so they, they can ask for that, and the difference is that uh, with this legislation, they'll need to wait 10 days before they can ask for that. But as it stands, no matter who you, where you are, you can always uh, be required um, to produce that, and, and every employee has a duty to cooperate with those requests. So how what kind of impact is this going to have on employers? We'll start with that. I think the impact is going to be fairly minimal because any time that an employee wants to take a sick day, assuming that if there's no sick days policy, that's going to be an unpaid leave. So it's not like they're they're getting uh, a free lunch here. Uh, I, I think that that employers will find that it's it's fairly rare for an employee to abuse um, these rules. I mean, of course, em- employees can and 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 you will always find employees who do but the reality is is that if an employee feels that they have um, some sort of mental condition which can be as simple as an anxiety disorder or if, or if they're really not feeling well um, they'll go to a doctor and they're going to get that note uh, I, I think this is actually going to help employers at the end of the day because it will keep sick people out of the workplace uh, because they don't have to um, deal with the inconvenience of having to sit in a doctor's office and uh, maybe get even more sick um, instead they can just take the day off and come back the next day and not have to worry about that. So I, I do think this is the right move. I think it benefits everyone here. I, I, I'm envisioning some workers saying, uh, oh, wow, I, I can take 10 sick days and not have to provide a doctor's note. I'm going to take advantage of this. The thing is, is that if, if an employer can prove that the employee is um, is lying, then they're still going to they're still going to have the right to engage in, in whatever appropriate disciplinary measures that there are. And like I said, it's not a free lunch; it's not a paid leave; it's an unpaid leave. So um, I think that you know only time will tell. And 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 you know it, it's 
certainly possible that this will lead to problems, but uh, the, the employees already have a fair amount of protections, and I don't think relieving them of having to get a doctor's note is going to make much of a difference because for the most part, if an employee is feeling um, ill or unwell or, or, or very anxious, doctors tend to tend to have a pretty low threshold for providing that note, so they tend to get that note anyway. We're chatting with uh, John Pincus, employment lawyer at Semfiro to Arkin, uh, also uh, the, the major players behind the employment hour here on CHML uh, Sundays at noon. From an employee standpoint, as you said, it takes away the inconvenience of having to get that note. That's right. Is there a greater impact for the employee? Uh I don't think that that it's really anything more than that because an employee has uh, they have a right under the human rights code uh, and a lot of people think that it comes from that it comes from the established leaves in the Employment Standards Act but it's really a, a freestanding right to be free from discrimination that's what we're talking about here if someone has an illness whatever that illness is in fact even if it's a perceived illness they have a right to be protected from any kind of reprisal for that um, so it, it's really just one less step that they have but it's not granting them more rights than they had before. It's it's just uh, it's a procedural relief. It's really nothing more than that, the way that I see it. Why the number 10? Why is that important? Why is, sorry, the... The, the, the number 10. Why, why not make it five sick days or, or 14? Why is 10 the, the number that, that they went with? Think? You know, far be it for me to, to speculate uh, where the uh, provincial government uh, came up with that. Um, so I, I'm not sure... I, I, I haven't any reason to believe that, you know, at 10 days, that's when it becomes uh, burdensome. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, at, at that point, I think that that probably with consultation from the uh, the Ontario Medical Association, and again, I'm completely uh, speculating at this yeah. point, but it's possible that maybe at the at the ten day point, that's when um, a condition becomes uh, a little bit more serious, and you know, an employer may have a right at that point to know what the prognosis is. Okay, you're off, but now we need to know how long you're going to be off. Um, uh, what what kind of restrictions are you going to have? Because once we start to get past a few weeks. Mark, then we start to look at something, okay, is this going to be someone who's going to be on long-term disability, and do we need to replace them? So right. I think at a certain point, the employer has a right to say, you know, you can stay on sick leave, but we have to have some idea of what's going on. They don't have a right to know the diagnosis, exactly what, what, what is happening, but they, they do have a right to know what the ultimate impact is going to be uh, on that workplace. Right, because that, that has a ripple effect on, you know, do you have to hire somebody else? Do you have to, you know, uh, hire, uh, you know, bring on some interns? Or There's a lot more dominoes that fall if, if someone is sick for a great amount of time. That's right, and that's why I completely agree there has to be a limit, and I don't know if 10 days is, is the right day, I'm, the right amount, but I imagine that was done in consultation with the uh, medical community, that basically after that 10-day mark, that, that's when we may start to look at um, some more serious, more chronic conditions that may require uh, some, um, some adjustments back to the workplace to take into account that this person may not be coming back for a while. Is this, uh, is this new legislation, is it going to have a greater impact on employees who work at smaller businesses or, or or at bigger businesses because they have more employees that they can rely on if someone does go down? For employees, I'm not sure it will have a, a bigger impact. From employers, uh, it, it's definitely more difficult. Uh, it's, it's a more difficult burden to shoulder for smaller employees. So they, they could definitely see some impact from this. Um, but like I said, I, I think that it's 
fairly unlikely that an employee is going to capriciously um, take time off when they're when they're not sick. And employees who abuse this uh, will they'll ultimately uh, find that um, I, I think it will be discovered one way or another that that, that they're being dishonest. So. Uh, there, there will definitely be a higher impact on uh, smaller employers than larger ones, uh, but I still think that impact is going to be fairly minimal. For employees who do uh, violate or, or stretch the sick days into you know a few weeks, uh, what are the rules surrounding employers uh, offering penalties or even letting that person go? What do they have to go through? Well, if an employer can prove that one of their employees has been outright dishonest uh, and that it goes to the trust of the relationship, it, it opens up the door, certainly, for uh, the potential argument that they have cause for dismissal. But it, it typically has to be something that they can establish is not trivial, uh, and missing a day of work with that explanation is very rarely going to be cause for that. Now, if they disappear for weeks or months at a time and it's unexplained, uh, then the employer may have grounds to say that that employee's abandoned their job, uh, and they may get out of having to pay them any severance uh, whatsoever. But uh, an employee who misses a day, uh, I mean, the employer certainly doesn't have to pay them for that day. Uh, but aside from that, there's, uh, you know, if they can prove that they've that they've been dishonest, they can uh, definitely start a progressive discipline. But terminating is probably going to be um, too extreme unless there's already a pattern of, of mm. dishonesty and, and that trust is fully eroded by that point. How hard is it to prove? I mean, do you need any kind of physical evidence or is it just note taking that goes in the employee's file or how does that work? Note-taking is good. Uh, warning letters are good, and, and typically an employer is going to want to get that warning letter signed and acknowledged by the employee. Mm. Uh, that's that's the kind of evidence that is tends to be more compelling. Um, but you you don't you don't want a situation where it's going to be a matter of their word against yours. If you're an employer, you want you want to have this documented as much as possible, and you want to give that employee the opportunity to respond and give their explanation. And if they are constantly doing this, constantly not having an, an adequate um, explanation, and constantly lying, um, then there may be the possibility um, to uh, to assert cause for dismissal. But that that's usually inadvisable except in, in very select situations because the threshold for uh, cause is, is quite high. Mm. Are there very few of these instances, or are you dealing with uh, a lot more of these cases uh, where you guys are? What what we see mostly, and and what what most of the cases in this in this uh, situation ha have dealt with, are employers who don't accept doctor's notes. And I, I don't mean I don't say that to be uh, biased against employers. There's definitely employees who abuse it and and, and who just leave uh, for weeks on end without explanation. But the majority of what I see uh, are employers who question um, illnesses, who don't take, uh, who who don't feel that they need to accommodate people with anxiety problems or depression, or um, employers who think there's some ulterior motive um, behind the doctor's notes that uh, maybe that's really a personality conflict and they're just using it as an excuse. So to, to be perfectly honest, um, and this is nothing against employers because it's it's definitely a, uh, a challenging burden for them, um, but I, I do see employers abuse this far more often than employees. And, and do employees have any other avenue to go to 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 prove that hey you know I, I do have an illness that I need to take time off of work every so often? 
Uh, the doctor really, is really the, the paramount um, authority on this. So if they get a, a, a letter from a doctor, it does not have to be detailed. I mean, if the employer asks the doctor um, a reasonable series of questions, then, then the doctor will, will, will fill them in. But a simple scribbled note just saying that um, this, this employee is too ill to work um, is going to be enough. Um, to to satisfy that the burden that 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 they were medically authorized to be on a leave. Now the employer can go back to that doctor and ask them more questions, and that and and uh, the employee has to facilitate that cooperation. Um, but they don't they don't need to establish. It's not like uh, uh, proving a, a personal injury matter or something like that where you need to mm-hmm. talk about the nature of the illness. It just you have to be too ill to go to work. That's the test, really. So John, you're seeing this as a win-win for both employees and employers. Right. I think I, I, my hope is that we'll see less sick people in the workplace. That's that's what I'm hoping. <laughs> that, that's a good thing to aim for. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. John, thanks for the time today. Enjoy your weekend. My pleasure. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. The Mummy uh, supposedly is dying a slow death at the box office in its debut weekend. This weekend, it is uh, ushering in Universal Pictures' Dark Universe franchise. Uh, it's uh, basically a fresh take on uh, Hollywood's famous monsters of the 1920s and the 30s. Uh, the interesting thing is, however, that Universal Pictures uh, hasn't waited to see if The Mummy, uh, which stars Tom Cruise, uh, is going to be successful before announcing the other films in the Dark Universe series. Uh, and, and when you think about it, I mean, there's hundreds of millions of dollars that are attached to these films. Universal has already announced Bride of Frankenstein, uh, The Invisible Man, uh, Wolfman will be in the mix. I'm sure Dracula will be in there. A creature from the Black Lagoon. That was another uh, monster from, uh, you know, back in the day, so to speak. Uh, Russell Crowe is basically the tie that binds here. He's going to play Dr. Jekyll uh, in all of these films. So great for Russell Crowe. I mean, he's, he's got a job for forever and ever, it appears. And uh, The Mummy, the, the latest incarnation, uh, reportedly cost $135 million uh, to make. It's forecasted to earn only uh, $35 million in its uh, debut weekend. It'll be well back of Wonder Woman, which was uh, last weekend's number one film, expected to remain on top uh, this weekend with an estimated $50 million haul. Uh, so it got me to thinking, uh, you know, movie franchises, Hollywood franchises, are we getting, uh, are we getting tired of some of them at least, because others are really doing very, very well. Let's bring in our next guest, Robert Thompson, founding director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University, and he joins us now. Robert, how are you? I'm doing well. How about you? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us uh, today here on the Scott Thompson Show. Um, maybe we'll start with the question. Are, are moviegoers, are movie lovers getting a little tired of, of movie franchises? Well, depends on the franchise. Some of them uh, uh, they don't like, and we have a perfect example of that uh, in The Mummy. Some of them they really love. We have a perfect example of that with, with Wonder Woman. Now, Wonder Woman may not be a movie franchise so much yet, but she's already appeared in television and comics and all over the place. She's certainly uh, territory that we've seen for, for decades. So I think it's almost like saying, you know, is America tired of the sitcom? Mm. Some sitcoms they really, really like after low these many years. The Big Bang Theory is still making tons of money. Some sitcoms come on, and 13 episodes later they're gone. So I don't think we can, we can judge 
the future of movies based on a certain type of movie, like the franchise uh, movie, we got to look at them one at a time. Well, let's look at the latest incarnation of the Mummy, Tom Cruise. Okay. You, you know, a, a guy who uh, has had a, a, an illustrious career in Hollywood. Uh, but when you think of the Mummy, yeah, I mean, this has been produced and reproduced and rebooted a number of times. Uh, for me, you know, my my personal thought is, uh, you know, I already know this story. You know, Mummy comes to life, and you know, things go bad. That's true, but at the same time, we also already know an awful lot of the stories that we uh, see. When you true. think about it, uh, you know, the uh, a bunch of people go to Vegas uh, uh, and get high or drunk and get into trouble. That's a story <laughs> we've heard a bunch of times. Yeah. Uh, uh, two people fall in love. I mean, it isn't so much what happens or even the character or... or or, or any of that. It's it's the execution um, uh, in the end. It's the way uh, it I happens. Think, I think the problem with The Mummy, as many, many critics who have written about it over the past uh, uh, days uh, uh, have said, is that it's it's not that it's The Mummy, or it's not that it's a movie we've seen before. It's just that it's not a very good movie. And in comparison, Wonder Woman is. A lot of the critics and a lot of the people who have gone to see it say this is a fantastic film. Right, it's uh, you know box office is the opposite of uh, uh, of the mummies, but once again, it's you could make the argument that we've heard this story before mm-hmm. too. I was watching the Wonder Woman on television when I was still what in high school. Yeah, with the invisible plane and the time, whole bit. By the way, since I've been in high school. <laughs> but it's all it's all about how the uh, obviously the producer and the director and the act- actors pull it off. It's the way they are telling the story. Right. I mean, in the end, movies uh, and books and novels and all the rest of it, it, it's not science. It's show business. And uh, we see all the time people trying to uh, interpret this otherwise. Remember when it was August of 1999, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire came out, and it was a huge, incredible hit. Yeah. And immediately, every other network tried to start throwing game shows onto primetime. And a couple of them worked, and an awful lot of them didn't. Because the whole point was that Who Wants to Make a Millionaire, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, wasn't a hit because it was a game show. It was a hit for a whole number of uh, different reasons. And I'm, I think that's true for any. Uh, show business uh, type of thing. It's very hard to put these things into formulas. If we could turn this into science, every single movie would be a hit. (laughs) Is there, though, a a secret ingredient to to have a hit franchise? You know, you look at the Avengers, and they have a cast of characters, and you can put standalones pretty much with, with any of them. And they have. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the the, the secret ingredient is one that, uh, no, there's no secret ingredient that anyone could, in fact, plug in and make the things a hit. If there were, nobody would make movies that weren't hits. Um, I I think in the end, it's a combination of all of the many, many, many things that go into making a good movie. Uh, You've usually got to have stars, but not necessarily. Uh, They've got to be appealing performances, uh, a good story. Uh, you know, credible special effects, uh, all that kind of thing. Uh, and any number of combinations can make a film uh, uh, a film work, which is why sometimes you'll have really inexpensive films with not a lot of stars in them that will become sleepers. We have a, we have a word for that kind of movie even. 
Are there uh, franchises that are uh, undeniable? I mean, they're, they're going to be a success no matter what. You know, I, I'm thinking about uh, Star Wars. Uh, James Bond would be in that uh, in that scenario. Uh, possibly the Avengers would be in there as well. Are, are, are those kind of franchises bulletproof? Yeah, you're right. There, there are a few that are that have got such traditions, and people look so forward to uh, any new iteration of them uh, that at least for their opens, they seem to be almost guaranteed to be um, successful. But I wouldn't go so far as to say uh, bulletproof. Um, it, it could, I could easily foresee the scenario in which a Star Wars, especially now that Star Wars movies are being um, you know, planned and release in all kinds of different ways. Yeah. Uh, I could easily see how one of these could come out and could be a, uh, you know, could end up being a real bomb. I mean, it's not like you're going to have crickets in the theater of the opening weekend of any Star Wars or uh, Avengers or James Bond film. Um, uh, but, you know, it, it, it people, it, it pretty soon find out if a show is a stinker. And I think that's probably the case already with The Mummy. Mm-hmm. And, and in the case of Star Wars, I mean, there was a thirst because there was a length of time uh, in which this story was, uh, you know, connected or, or continued. Right. I mean, especially between those first three uh, uh, um movies and the second three, there was what amounts to a generation, uh, which allowed all the interest and the nostalgia and the legend of Star Wars to percolate. Um, and of course, as you recall, when that next batch of Star Wars movies uh, came out, depending on how you, who you talked to, mm-hmm. uh, not everybody thought those were masterpieces. Very true. And uh, yeah, a lot of Remember people... Jar Jar Binks. Yes. <laughs> oh, poor Jar Jar. Uh, uh, yeah, a lot of people love them and a lot of people really hated them, especially the, the, the anti-Jar Jar faction, that's for sure. Uh, aside from you know, the... Even Star Wars, when I think about it, even Star Wars in its earliest days did have a bomb. It wasn't a movie, but you remember the Star Wars Holiday Special? I don't remember that, no. That came out, well, and it's very hard to see. It, it, it was completely pulled from release. The only way to see it is in pirated uh, uh, copies off of VHS and beta tapes. But, <laughs> um, Star Wars comes out, of course, becomes a monster hit in 1977. In the uh, Christmas season of 1978, they did a two-hour Star Wars Holiday Special with all the original cast. Everybody was uh, uh, was in it, and it has gone down in history as one of the most loathed uh, um, uh, television programs ever made. So even that franchise, in its early uh, nativity, uh, had a show that nobody liked. Wow. I'll have to check that out on YouTube. It's got to be somewhere online. Yeah, it's, you can find it, but it's uh, it's never had any kind of uh, uh, official release, and it's so bad that it's not even fun. You know, sometimes stuff is bad and it's fun to watch because it's <laughs> bad. This is just bad, bad. <laughs> uh, still to come in the uh, the Dark Universe franchise, uh, Bride of Frankenstein, Invisible Man, uh, possibly the Wolfman, Creature from the Black Lagoon. They're, they're probably going to be another reboot from Dracula. I'm not sure how they can leave him out. Uh, it, it, it's probably safe to say that one of these is going to be a hit. Yeah, I, I don't think this completely muddies the uh, waters of the rest of this planned uh, franchise. It's certainly not the way you want to launch a big new project like this um, with a incredibly expensive. You pointed out the mummy, 135 million. Some people say it might be as much as 190 that that wow. uh, uh, cost. Um, but anyway, a lot of money. Um, it's not the way one wants to launch this. But you're right. All those other titles that you talk about uh, could be very different kind of films with very different kind of approaches, obviously different monsters, 
Um, and while they're all linked together under this one umbrella, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're all going to be the same kind of movie, and it gives us very little predictive value as to how the rest will do. Robert, appreciate the time today. Enjoy the weekend. Great fun. Thank you. All right, Robert Thompson, founding director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University, talking about, uh, well, the, the Dark Universe uh, movie franchise, and this is uh, being launched with The Mummy, which has, uh, by all accounts, um, not going to do so well at uh, the box office this weekend. Uh, Robert saying that uh, uh, producers have spent upwards of $190 million. We've We've learned it's uh, about $135 million. Um, maybe that's the U.S. to Canadian conversion, I don't know. Uh, but forecast to only earn $35 million bucks, and uh, certainly a slow start for this dark universe franchise uh, out of the gates but uh, you know you think of some of the characters involved in this uh, you know quote unquote dark universe uh, the mummy eh, you know we, we've had so many mummy movies in the past uh, even 20 years wasn't there a mummy trilogy or, or, or four movies to that uh, effect um, but the invisible man uh, apparently starring Johnny Depp that could be interesting uh, the bride of Frankenstein or even Frankenstein uh, would be uh, interesting. Uh, Dracula has been told over and over and over again, and it, it all comes down to uh, you know the focus and the direction and the execution of that uh, of that movie. The creature from the Black Lagoon would be certainly interesting. I, I can't quite envision how that would attract a mass audience, but uh, you never know. It certainly had a cult following back in the day. And uh, the Wolfman, you know, we've seen werewolf movies from time and time again. And uh, I'm sure that will be uh, much debated when it comes out. But uh, the Dark Universe, uh, off to a slow start with The Mummy. Uh, When you look at some of the uh, top grossing franchises, movie franchises, went to uh, the good old Internet and uh, picked off a few uh, intriguing numbers. And uh, let's give you the top, let's see here, one, two, three, four, five, let's give you the top six or seven here. Um, X-Men, certainly in the uh, the mix, uh, with $1.8 million in its latest, uh, no, I'm not reading that right, hold on, what, 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 this is the total franchise gross. Uh, I think that's $1.8 billion. Yes, I think that's a a typo. It certainly is. $1.818 billion for the X-Men franchise. Lord of the Rings, a little bit better, at $1.846 billion. The James Bond franchise is just north of $2 billion. Batman is at $2.3 billion. And you think of all the Batman movies. Batman, Batman Returns, Mask of the Phantasm. I don't even remember that one. Uh, Batman Forever, Batman and Robin, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises, and there's a trio of others. Uh, Batman versus Superman, uh, Lego Batman movies, apparently in the Batman uh, franchise. So uh, Batman at $2.3 billion. Bucks. Harry Potter at $2.6 billion. And uh, Star Wars is next at $3.7 billion. That is third most all time. Uh, Marvel's Cinematic Universe, so that encapsulates uh, Iron Man, uh, Incredible Hulk, Thor, uh, Captain America, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy in there, uh, Avengers, Doctor Strange would be in there too. $4.2 billion bucks for Marvel's uh, franchise. And uh, number one on the top grossing uh, domestically franchises, movie franchises, is, and I was kind of surprised with this, the Pixar Disney 
animation franchise, which includes a whole host of movies from Toy Story to Monsters, Inc., to Finding Nemo, to the Cars trilogy. Wally is in there. Um, uh, Inside Out, uh, The Good Dinosaur, Finding Dory, all those movies have uh, generated an amazing amount of money. $4.5 billion. There's 17 movies in the uh, Pixar Disney animation franchise. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.